Well, hey guys, it's been a while, but very happy to be back and have Dean Kilgore with us. Dean is an attorney in Texas. He spent the first 20 years of his career doing litigation, and then in 1995, he pivoted and started focusing on alternative dispute resolution, which is mediation, which is helping people um, come to a resolution without having to go in front of a judge and a jury. So uh, we're talking about an enormous amount of experience, and a large portion of the work he does is with contractors, subcontractors, homeowners, our people, people who are building things and having things built and who run into um, conflict in the course of business. So this is a really important discussion. It's a good reminder um, for all of us, whether you're a contractor or whether you're like me and you hire a contractor from time to time, um, there are so there is so much risk out there that can't be avoided. Anytime you, you want to accomplish anything, building or otherwise, you're going to take some risk. Um, it's nice to n- at least be aware of the risks you're taking. I think a lot of contractors go about their work kind of unaware of how much pain and suffering and conflict and um, money can be you know, wasted by by getting into a conflict that could have been avoided with with proper uh, preventative measures, which we talk about. So very important discussion, whether you are a contractor or not. And I have a feeling these principles apply to almost anybody in almost any business who is dealing with any amount of risk. So very lucky to have Dean with us. He's a part of our Essential Craftsman Academy, and he's uh, showed up in our shop talk several times, shared his projects. He's working on blacksmithing and just absolute salt of the earth. Great guy. Could not be more pleased to bring you this interview with Dean Kilgore. Without any further ado, let's get into it. First thing, I guess, for both me and the audience, um, I would love to just hear your, your a b- bit about your background and how you got to this, you know, part of law and this part of, in your career where you obviously have the interest in the trades and blacksmithing, but your day to day, you are in, in the legal world. I am, I am, um, and this is kind of a set piece. I'm. People ask me this question: How did you get where you are? So, um, it's it's pretty simple. I grew up in a family of lawyers. I went to law school, practiced with my father's firm for 19 years, figured out that it was my father's firm and, um, <laughs> and it was always going to be his firm. So um, another lawyer and I left and formed a small litigation boutique. So for about 20 to 25 years, I did heavy litigation. I represented drug companies and oil companies and airline manufacturers or airplane manufacturers and um and hospitals and did mostly defense work and was pretty doggone good at kicking people through their hat in the court in the courtroom and i got tired of it i got really Uh. tired of it um and the the mediation business was starting to grow in texas and i thought take a whack at that. Um, and in 1995, killed my litigation practice and started doing mediation full-time. And I've been doing it since then. I've done a couple of thousand cases. Um, I think somewhere near half of them involving construction. And um, wow. I've, I've always had an interest in building, uh, building design and 
um, I was pretty good at the technical aspect of anything I studied. So um, I just learned the construction process through watching lawsuits develop about trouble in the in the construction trades. So um, wow, that's that's what I do now. Um, Fifty to a hundred times a year, I sit down with lawyers and their clients and talk them through the process of trying to find a resolution of uh, of, of a lawsuit. And again, a lot of them wow. in the uh, in in the construction trades. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I told you before we started recording that I predict there'll be so much interesting and important information that we might have to do this multiple times. So for the listeners, understand that um, <laughs> we're going to cover as much as we can, but yeah. I have a feeling yeah. there's going to be the contractors among us, among the audience, kind of on the edge of their seat. With that many um, um, mediation cases, half of them construction, I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of recurring sort of similar um, rhyming scenarios and kind of what I'm thinking and what I'd like to go through is kind of the basics. I I mean, at that point, it seems like the, the, the problem is set in place. So I'm, I'm hoping we can kind of talk about some of the things that contractors can do and best practices and habits that can keep them from uh, getting to that seat at a mediation table or even worse in a courtroom, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because once you find yourself in litigation, you get lawyered up. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a different game. Um, you're, you're, you're playing high stakes poker. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, it, it drains your time. Um, it's distracting from your business and, mm-hmm. and you can't stop. Uh, the process drags you along with it, so avoiding it is is. Um, I mean, I've got a, I've got a passion for the notion that people ought to avoid getting themselves into the courthouse because I spent too many years trying lawsuits to think that's a that's a fun place to be. Um, so I I've been run you know self employed running my own businesses for ten or twelve years, and my instinct has always been, if I'm honest and follow the golden rule. How could I get into trouble? And I'm not a contractor. I know contractors have more risk, but maybe talk about that. Some of the, the and con, construction is so broad. There's so it many is. types of, of trades. So maybe talk about the types of trades and why just a, you know, just, you know, having a, an honest and handshake and keeping your word may not be enough in this day and age. And it, it, it may not be. Um, there are times it's not. I, uh, legal risk in construction is like the risk of weather or health risk. Um, you can do things to avoid getting hit by lightning, but you may still get hit by lightning. Um, you, you can follow best practices, but lightning can strike you just about anywhere because the construction process um, and I'm not talking about just installing a water heater, although that has its own risk with it. But if you're involved in a construction project and you're a contractor or a uh, a subcontractor, um, the, the progress of any job depends upon a lot of people doing what they are supposed to do when they say they are going to do it and managing the money correctly. So the sources of risk that you run into are obviously the first one is just poor work. Um, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but if people don't do high quality or skillful work, they're going to get in trouble. Um, mm-hmm. 
skillful work isn't always enough to keep you out of trouble because you can do something skillfully, but you may not be following the construction documents. You may build something well, but it's not what's designed. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can get you in trouble. You can build something on top of what the last guy built because you're adding always in a construction project. And if you're not aware that the last tradesman has an error in their work and you're building on top of it, you can end up owning that mistake. So um, um, if somebody has built something that later fails and your work is on top of it, there's no guarantee that somebody won't make a claim. And lawyers are very good at making claims, um, whether they can support them or not, um, that your work contributed to the failure. May or may not. Often doesn't, but um, the... The legal system is good at extracting money from people. Uh, We call it a justice system, but most people wouldn't recognize it as justice. It's just a high-risk environment, which is why you kind of want to avoid it. Um, So um, other other broad categories of things other than the, the work itself um, Um, one one question about quality, because I'm guilty of this as a person who hires contractors from time to time, like almost in order to save money myself, like, you know, telling a contractor or somebody else, Oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So are you, so your one of your rules is just never sacrifice. Even if the customer is asking you to cut a corner, just basically too risky. Well, yeah, I asked my son-in-law who's a master plumber. Um, what do you do when somebody says, put a new water heater in and you look in and you realize that the clearances in the, in the closet for the water heater don't meet code. What do you do? Um, And he said, it depends upon how well I know them. And then he looked a little sheepish and he said, I know that's going to bite me sometime. Yeah. And it can. Um, So yeah, the, 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 the golden rule is, is follow the code, follow the rules, do it right. And uh, sometimes you'll disappoint people. Sometimes people will say, well, I'll hire somebody else. And you've just found a person then who, if if that water heater causes a problem later, um, that's exactly the kind of person that's going to turn around and blame you for it, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of the fact that they've said, don't worry about it. Um, so. Yeah. And there's some trades, and maybe you could name a few from experiences where like maybe the plumber isn't doesn't have the riskiest trade compared to oh, like yeah. a dirt yeah, work yeah, guy. Yeah. But what, what, who are the who are the subs or the contractors who really need to be paying close attention to you know this conversation? What what types of well, subcontractors have the most risk? Obviously, the general contractor has all the risk. The general contractor is responsible to the owner to build according to the design documents. Now, the general contractor lays off some of that risk on subcontractors. But that does not relieve the general contractor of the entire responsibility of the job being built correctly. Uh, but uh-huh. the subcontractors that, that, that I see more often uh, are foundation contractors um, or foundation design people. Because um, uh-huh. this, was, this was the topic of a discussion the other night on the, on the shop talk. What do you do when you've got a, a, a risky situation for, for pouring a slab? Um, that's a very expensive mistake to make. If the foundation uh-huh. doesn't perform, then everything built on top of it, everything mm-hmm. is at risk. So foundation contractors have a high level of risk. Next, anything in the building envelope, anything that keeps water outside, we don't want water inside, we want water outside. 
So um, there's a right way to install windows. A lot of windows aren't installed the right way. There are a lot of flashing details that are the right way to flash a roof um, or to, to treat a place where different materials join one another uh, in a building envelope. There's a right way to build a drainage plane. And the people that do those, um, water wants to get into buildings. And water in buildings is a high, um, high risk. It, it causes a lot of problems. When water's in a building, there's a search for the guilty. And usually the, um, the framer, uh, the roofer, uh, any waterproofing contractor, whoever installed the drainage plane, those people are going to be suspect. So that's mm-hmm. fairly high risk. Um, and then the, the, the roof itself is always a risky thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are the trades that, um, that, that, that come to mind about people who, who get sued often. The skilled trades... Um, I mean, an electrician, you can always start fires. Um, an HVAC contractor, if the system doesn't keep the air dry in the building and it starts to grow mold, you got problem. Everybody has their share of the risks. But people who build complicated things on top of what other people build, people mm. who build the foundation, people who put on the roof, have a pretty high level of risk. You see a lot of claims um, out of that kind of work. And that's, that's generally a matter of quality of work, following, mm-hmm. following a good set of design documents and doing work according to code and according to best practices. Um, it's, it's when people cut corners that, that those folks get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's like this, there's two like narratives, one that contractors are, and both of these things exist, but there's the sneaky contractors who are cutting corners and you know, b- bad at managing their money and just kind of barely scraping by and, and all that. And then, and that exists and people can get in trouble with those. But I also, I think coming from a family, you know, as the listeners know, my dad's a contractor my whole life. And so I have much more loyalty in my heart to the contractors and how customers can, it, they have, they can t- beat up a contractor pretty bad. Like I've got this friend who does granite countertops and he tells me like every time they go in a house to remove the old Formica countertops, he's like, the people just freak out. Cause they're not used to, they basically just like kind of rip them. Cause there's these little plastic tabs and he's just explaining like, right. it's perfectly normal. We do it like probably 20 or 30 times a week. But a lot of people, they see that they instantly think that we are just total negligent criminals for making such a racket. So point is a lot of, I, I can see, I feel like I'm got a, a foot in each side of the line on this. I could see sure. both sure. sides. Where do you fall? Do you, do you generally feel more, are you representing and helping contractors more with these questions or are you often, um, are the, is a contractor on the other side of the table uh, from you and your client? Well, they, they're both there. That's that's the uh, the particular uh, interesting aspect of my practice. Oh yeah, that's oh, mediation. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. exactly. So I'm good yeah, point. I'm, I'm sitting in between. Okay, uh, good point. Yeah, my my native um, sense is to, to want to be for the guys on the on the contracting side because they're yeah. more real world. Um, yes, but the point you make that people can get you in trouble. If there is one of those, and there are sneaky contractors out there, or simply unskilled or unscrupulous, uh-huh. 
but they're not listening to us anyway. And if they are, they're not going to learn anything from this conversation. <laughs> right. What I want somebody to understand is that if you're a tradesperson working for one of those contractors, you're putting yourself at risk. Because, like, if you're an employee, for uh, a if, if if you're a subcontractor. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, if you're a sub, got it. Because um, if the if the general contractor managed the the framing of the building, and uh-huh. was careless, and the framing um, doesn't follow the um, doesn't follow the plan, mm-hmm. it may make a room, but uh, if the electrician's got to come in and rough in the um, the the electricals in framing that doesn't follow the plan, the electrician may be on the hook to come back and redo that work later or Mm -hmm. be exposed for legal risk for not following the plans because the electrician put it in a wall that doesn't Mm -hmm. follow the construction documents. So uh, if you're following somebody who is not of the highest quality or standards, um, they can create risk for you. Um, a homeowner can create risk for you by saying, don't worry, I want it done this way, or, hey, can you do this? I'll pay you. Uh, to, And a contractor wants to think, sure, I trust this person, and uh, we all know what happens. So um, <laughs> yeah. people, people can create risk. And if you, what I really hope most contractors can do is develop a sense, um, sort of an internal sense of, when something feels risky mm-hmm. and pay attention to that because if it feels risky and you talk yourself into thinking well it's probably going to be okay you'll revisit those decisions down the road because your your gut's a very sensitive instrument um so you probably have some you know stories of people ignoring their gut and i'm sure it goes both ways contractors yeah. getting weird yeah. vibes from clients but can you talk about that a little more? Like it, what type of feelings or gut, oh. what types of little red flags have you seen that contractors look back and, or, or homeowners look back and say, should have, should have slowed uh, yeah, them down right then. Yeah. Um, I, I, let's see, nothing, nothing of the sort of shifty nature comes to mind. The thing that, uh, General contractors, and this is probably especially true in commercial building um, or or in high-end residential, there's some commercial contractors who are not unscrupulous, but they are students of their own contracts. They know that they have good lawyers. They have contracts that put the risk of the work on others wherever they can, and they are not at all shy about enforcing their contracts. Um, So if... If, if a if a subcontractor has signed on to do the HVAC work in a commercial job and has not read the specifications in that job and does not know that the general contractor has loaded a bunch of risk for the HVAC contractor into the documentation of the job, then you can get bet. So people ought to be aware of the reputations of the people that they that they work with on the contractor side. Um, mm-hmm. on the, on the owner's side, if we're thinking, um, residences, I can't tell you how many times there's a personality, uh, conflict between spouse A and spouse B. Mm-hmm. Spouse A is the, I want this done right. I want it done on time. Um, 
just, but please deal with spouse B on a daily basis. Spouse uh-huh. B says, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? I've changed my mind. I want to do, I want to do this. And the contractor wants to try to make everybody happy. But um, if spouse B says, I'm going to make a change, that's going to cost time and money. Spouse A may say, I didn't sign on for that. I said, we want this thing done on time. And when the fight starts, spouse A and B sleep together. They're going to get on the same page. And the contractor is going (laughs) to get a knife between the ribs. So um, when you feel like you're being worked, you're being worked. The odds (laughs) are you're being worked, you know, and it may not be intentional. It just may Uh be in the personalities of a, of a, um, of a couple for whom you're building. So uh, there are lots of places where people, uh, a designer, an architect, an engineer um, can, can get you in trouble. Uh You think you're following the, the design documents you ask for clarification. Uh, you don't get it. The architect says, I think this is going to be fine. And then you build it. And the architect later says, you know, that doesn't follow my documents. Um, so if you don't have good control on the communication there. Um, okay. So I know I've had conversations that I've heard and been a part of like this, where a person could say, therefore you document everything in email and you have a lawyer review it. But sometimes it's not always realistic to let's say have your own attorney review an entire contract or even worse. Someone could say, you know, don't sign someone else's contract, use yours. But I mean, if when you're in business, you also have to you do. take jobs, you have to do that. And so you have to do that. How, how do you advise? Do you, is it kind of just hone this gut instinct and, or, are there shortcuts that can hold up a little more or tip the scale that are relatively small, you know, asks for a contractor or how do you, what are some specifics of like along these lines of not getting pinned between multiple parties sure, that a subcontractor sure. can do? Um, so if, if you start right at the front end, l- lawyers are expensive um, and, until you wish you had one. And, yeah. and if you if you did something and you think, well, I didn't have a lawyer look at this and it bites you on the fanny, um, yeah. maybe sometimes you'll go back. Uh, we're not we're not talking about people who are in the trades. We're talking about people who have contracting risk. If I'm a plumbing contractor and I'm signing a, a contract to uh, to do the plumbing work on a job for you, uh, if you set yourself up in business. Set aside enough money to have a lawyer advise you at the front end on how to organize your business. If it's Dean Kilgore, the plumber, then my checkbook and my toys and my whatever my financial wherewithal is at risk. If it's Dean Kilgore, limited liability company, in most states, there's some protection. The mm-hmm. the people look to the to the legal entity to the company for responsibility. So getting some advice on the front end about how to protect your own financial assets from being exposed that's a that's a good thing to do. Getting a pretty good set of basic documents. If you if you do mostly residential work um, and you've got a a bid form that you use or a proposal form. 
lot of lawyer look it over and make sure you've got in that what you need. So mm-hmm. um, having some legal work at the front end really does help. And yeah. then um, this is where sometimes you got to stay up late. If, if if the sun's down and you're tired, you still have to go read the contract you're going to sign. Um, yeah. And the more sophisticated the job and the longer the contract and the more extensive the construction documents, the more you better be aware because there are so many pitfalls. Um, mm. I mean, a plumbing contractor says, yeah, I'll, I'll take the plumbing phase of this job and here's my price. And somewhere embedded in the specifications, which you didn't read, um, there's a, you're going to provide certain of the plumbing fixtures, not as a part of the labor, but as a, there's not a separate budget for those. You thought I'm just bidding the labor, but you're bidding the labor and some very expensive toys that have got to be included in it. And a, that's a bad time to find it out when you've already <laughs> I know a contract. I, I knew a plumber, a, a friend of a friend had a plumbing business that missed the angle stops on a bid on a hotel and an angle stops like 10 bucks. Absolutely. But when you multiply that by, you know, eight, 800 of them, it's, it basically put them out of business Absolutely. because the, the GC was like, I didn't, that I didn't, wasn't providing that. It just got, it slipped through the cracks. Done. It happens all the time. So um, your, your question had something about documentation, um, and, and there are really three levels of documentation that I think people in the trades ought to be thinking about. Um, the, the most important are the contract documents, the design documents. What are we building? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something you document, and that's not something the general contract. It's something that comes down from on high. The owner said, I want this thing built. So you have to understand the, the construction documents, then there are the contract documents that say who's going to do what at what price. And then there's the business of documenting people's communication during a job, which is what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. This is the greatest device for construction documentation. If, mm-hmm. um, if, if I'm that electrician and I walk in and I'm supposed to rough in the um, the wiring in this wall and I say, wait a minute, there's supposed to be an offset in this wall to receive some casework. Mm-hmm. And it's not there. And I'm here today. This is my day. And I check with the general contractor. What do I do? The general contractor can say, stand down. We're going to get the framer to correct that. Or the general contractor mm-hmm. says, blaze on. We'll fix it later. Um. That's when you pick up your phone, take a photograph of that wall, text the general contractor confirming your instruction that I proceed with wiring here. That's all you need. If you go home and write a, this confirms our conversation today in which you told me to do the following and I'm relieved of all risk. And so, well, you'll beat yourself to death trying to write those. But taking a simple photograph and having a direct communication with somebody who gives you an instruction, um, they may bristle a little bit, but tell them, hey, you know, six months down the road, we're not going to remember this conversation. I just want to make sure we're on the same page today. Yep. Um, and that's a great place if it, if you take an owner's uh, instruction to go ahead or to build something in a particular way or a general contractor, and you send them a note like that with a photo and they, they blow up on you, you just learn something. They're dangerous. 
They don't mm-hmm. like having their instructions documented. Um, so uh, it may be uncomfortable, but if you're, if you're ever in the trades and uncomfortable about taking a risk and you think somebody else has said it's okay, document it at least at that level. A simple photograph, an email, or a text saying confirm that I'm supposed to do this. And then uh, if you're comfortable, build it and let's see what happens. Um, that that whole concept of passing the risk around and take that re- that really is such a huge part of construction from the first minute because even when the owner or developer whoever wants to do a project it's that's the question how much will it cost nobody knows nobody knows the exact answer of what it will cost every single person is taking their best guess and then adding whatever they value the risk of who knows all what. And so I have never thought about it like that, but that portions of that, that risk get chopped up and passed around and pinned on other people throughout the whole project. That is, that's one of the greatest bits of understanding about risk in construction. It's chopped up and it's diced and it's parceled uh-huh. out by, by separate contracts, by the, by the way people price things. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the the um, the pricing, the fact that you say you you, you take a guess, um, you add a little fudge to it, and you think, okay, this is this is how I'm going to price it. Clarity in pricing mm-hmm. is uh, at all levels enormously important. Um, mm-hmm. it, we'll go back to the plumber installing a, um, um, a a water heater. Somebody calls and said, hey, what do you get for installing a water heater? Two hundred and fifty dollars. You know, then you show up and they meant moving the water heater from here across the kitchen. They meant <laughs> not putting a new water heater in where the, and now, now yeah. fight starts. Well, you gave me one price. So clarity in what's included and what's mm-hmm. excluded is enormously important. And then sticking with it. I think if, 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 if you're in the trades and you give somebody a price and you underbid, learn to eat it. Don't try to make it up because people will figure it out. People will find out that you're trying to alter your pricing. And it may feel better for a little while, but um, um, once they're on to you, you're, you're exposing yourself. And those are bad kinds of cases when you've got a price in writing and you're caught billing somebody for something else, especially more than that price. Um, judges and juries don't like that at all. Oh, so you're saying just eat it, fall on your sword, and and that's your cheapest way out potentially is to just absolute not not sneak in another Absolute. bump on the billing. Absolutely, mm-hmm. which is why clarity in pricing is important. Um, mm-hmm. If you think um, and and the basis for the pricing, um, people will. We all know there's there are multiple ways to price things. You do it on a time and materials basis, and I got no idea what it'll be. But I'll charge you for this much per hour and this. Well, that's the safest way for a contractor. At the opposite yeah. end of it, there's a fixed price. I want to do this yeah. job for X, and um, here's what I'm going to do, and I've got the risk. And then there are hybrids between. But, boy, be clear and stay with it. Um, um, and I, wow. I can't emphasize that enough. Um People find 
Changing pricing, increasing pricing is viewed by most lay people as dishonest and they will punish you for it. Um, So be be careful about your pricing. (laughs) I got caught. Here's like a little mini side story. Um, I did this block fence that I contract that I built. I, I hired a guy to build on my storage facility. It was by far the biggest like contract I had ever made with a contractor. I think the bid was $90,000 and that was a lot of money still. But at the end it was, it was all my eggs in one basket. This, this fence had to go up. Anyways. Um, I hired this guy. He seemed great licensed everything. Really. I had a great feeling. And the first day they, his crew came to work. Um, well, long, I'll cut to the chase on a Saturday on Saturdays, he had like 30 guys show up and he came with like a big manila envelope full of cash and was just like paying all these day labors, probably illegal, although that's not the point. The point is that he was really doing it just not the way I was expecting. And about two weeks into the project, well, first of all, it took him way longer, but he came to me and said he needed another $10,000 to finish it. And I basically just gave it to him because I kind of felt like I was in so deep with this guy already. I needed the job to get done. Like I didn't, I couldn't afford to litigate for months. And, and even then I, I just didn't know, but I basically just had to eat it. I guess my lead to this question, aside from supporting your uh, point there about following your gut and <laughs> um, price increases being a red flag, um, it was about timing because this job took forever, way longer than he originally told me. He said it would take four weeks. And I was like, that makes sense. I think it took 12 weeks, maybe longer. I can't remember, but it was, it was really terrible. It cost me a ton of money and just, and uh, it was a huge problem. And I know sometimes that's, that can be out of the contractor's control, I guess, but I don't know. Also, it's a sign of a disorganized contractor. So to what extent can you control or how do you kind of control the risks around timing from ooh, both sides of the aisle here. Ooh, ooh, big, big, nasty topic because yeah. um, delay claims in, in big jobs, high-end residential jobs. Um, and when I say high-end, I don't mean that expensive houses are more important than inexpensive houses, but people that can afford expensive houses can afford lawyers. People that have modest houses typically can't afford lawyers. So um, unless you really butcher a job on a smaller home, the legal risk is lower because people just they just want to avoid the, um, the, the, the courthouse. As you move into people of means, they have expectations. Um, so that's why I'm talking about high-end homes and commercial jobs. There are expectations about time, and often there are penalties in contracts for not meeting. Um, and you talk about shifting risk around uh, yeah. in in a job. Um, Nate, as a general contractor, knowing who you're dealing with, knowing their track record, um, knowing that someone has done this this kind of work many many times before, that's your best insurance against it. If you don't have somebody who's on your list of subcontractors and you, you, you take a flyer, you take the risk that goes with it. And you learned that it cost you $10,000 and some time, but what it didn't, what you didn't let happen to you 
is get in a fight with that guy. He pulls off the job. You hire somebody else. They can't get there for another six weeks. They charge yeah. you 20000 Now the owner is mad at you, and the thing spirals <laughs> out of control. So, um, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, 12 or 15 stitches in an open cut is 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 better than bleeding out. Uh, um, you know, to, to put a button on that story, as I think about it, that was actually the second contractor I hired. The first, this is really, I learned so much in this experience. The first contractor, he sent his backhoe operator to dig the footings out and was digging. I got there and I, I knew enough to know that they, they didn't call the, um, the call before you dig the 811. Sure. And I was kind of like, whoa, that's not kind of brave. And as, as I'm like looking at this, I see him rip a telephone line and I'm like, uh, hold on. We got a real problem. And I called the, the, the guy I hired and he, he basically put all the risk on me. He's like, if you wanted that done, then you should have called it in this. And he, in, he was immediately like pivoting to like, say, Hey, this is between you and the backhoe operator. I don't have anything to do with this. And I learned so much because right then I, I was like, yeah. Oh good. I'm, I am so glad this happened. Cause you are not the fence guy for me. I gave his backhoe guy like 500 bucks it's and it was like, get out of here. Yeah, like yeah. please don't yeah. come back. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I survived the deal. The, the, the other contract, like I said, it went off the rails a little bit, but they were building a good fence. That was, I think the reason why I was kind of like stuck with them. Um, I learned so much on that. It could have been way worse. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's, I can't remember the old story about um, uh, that, that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Um, yeah. you, <laughs> yeah, you have to make some mistakes in order to, to, to develop the experience. And what you hope is that um, one of these things doesn't jump up and bite you. There are some people who are kind of nasty who will, and I'm thinking about homeowners, let's say, but I'm sure there's other contractors and, and subs who are the same way who almost look for people they can kind of take advantage of. And I've heard horror stories yes. of, of owners who will find a contractor and just abuse them, you know, and, and, yes. and what, what do you do or how do you protect against I don't even know what specifics are there, but I guess all of these things generally can help. But there are some really evil people who just want to there take are, advantage. There are, and I—I um, I don't mean to rag. There, there are contractors that do that as well. Uh, who, yes, who hire subcontractors and then abuse subcontractors. There are owners that do that. There are subcontractors that sign up jobs and then. Uh, of course, you, you're generally at the bottom of the food chain. It's because it, yeah. the subcontractor is the last one to get paid, uh, which means it's harder to abuse people from that position than it yes. is if, if you're in the check writing position. So owners yeah. have the power of the checkbook and general contractors have the power of the checkbook. Um, again, d develop a sense of whether or not this is somebody you want to work with and get out um, if, if it starts to go bad and you've got an off ramp, take it. Um, because the longer you hang around, the more skin you've got in the game. And, um, mm -hmm. those people, this is, and this is hard. I mean, this is, this affects people's income. You've got your schedule set up and this is a job that's, the, that's on your book. It's time to do it. And you decide, I don't want to do this. Um, mm -hmm. it can, it can hurt. But it's not going to hurt as much 
as when the constable comes and serves the paper in the lawsuit and you realize now I've got to go hire a lawyer at God knows what per hour and deal with this. Um, And, you you know, something we've skipped over and might as well drop it in right now. And that is insurance. Um, It may be kind of a tail end topic and people go insurance. You know, I can't afford insurance. Um, A little primer on insurance in the construction trades. Um, insurance coverage questions drive lots of construction lawsuits. Um, 15 people have been sued. The lawyers are always looking to see who's got insurance and what does it cover. And it's amazing how the claims start drifting that direction. Mm. The most important thing you get out of having an insurance policy that covers at least some aspect of your business is a lawyer. The insurance company will engage an attorney to represent you. And then it becomes the insurance company's problem, how they get out of the case. Um, Whether or not they write a big check, a little check, no check at all, there's a lawyer working for you. So um, if you're in the construction trades, go see a skilled insurance broker and find out what coverage is available for you. And even if you get lousy coverage, coverage that doesn't pay for much, coverage that, um, that, that... is, is rarely going to write a big check, even if you file something up. If it gets a lawyer hired for you, you're aces. Because um, mm-hmm. you're avoiding that massive expense of being in a lawsuit on your own nickel. Um, so that's one of the greatest benefits of having some insurance coverage. And you need to have an agent or a, or a broker work with you to tell you what kind of coverage will have the highest likelihood of getting an attorney engaged for you. If you, and then it's like everything else, it's expensive until you need it. Um, And when you need it, it is a blessing. Um, Um, About payment. I know that a lot of this pivots around who gets paid when and how billing is done. What do you think is the way that contractors should, what's normal for, how billing's done and what is a red flag for if someone's saying they want payment in this or that way? How, what are the different ways it's done? What do you think is the best way and what ways are concerning? Okay. Well, so contracts? And, and when you say uh, ways of being paid, do you mean the time of payment or well, the, I don't, or like the, for example, I hired a guy to build a kitchen for me once and he's yeah. like, he said, okay, I need half up front. Right. And I wrote the guy a check for like $8,000. I had never met him in my life. And I just had this like sick feeling while I was writing him this check. And I know this, I'm violating probably one of the rules right here, but that was probably not wise. And at the same time, from his point of view, he was going to buy all this lumber and stuff. So I don't know, I guess, I guess like how much upfront and at the end and how, how, what do you feel like is the ideal way that contracts should address when um, contractors, you know, pull draws and pull payments and such? So uh, it's obviously different for a general contractor in their dealings with the owner and subcontractors in their dealings with the general contractor. Um, You're right. There are lots of different ways to do it. Um, Reputation of of the contractor is, is, is paramount. If there's, $8,000 worth of material at the front end of a kitchen remodel, um, then it may be appropriate for the contractor to ask for that. 
What it does tell you is that the general contractor doesn't have his or her own money in the game. It means they're using your money always. That's a bit of a red flag. They can get out in front of you um, and you're, you're relying upon them to spend your money on your job, not on the last job that they're trying to finish up. So um, speaking from, from an owner's point of view, having a good, clear contract, having the general contractor say to you in writing, this is what this job is going to cost. Here is how, um, here's how I'm going to charge you. And the money up front is going to be spent on materials for your job. There's some general contractors that'll draw their profit. The first thing they draw is their profit. Mm -hmm. And then they worry about how they finish the job later. Those are dangerous Mm -hmm. people to deal with. I don't think I'm really answering your question. How do you, you, um, I don't know. I just know that it's, I know it's just fuzzy, you know, because for a lot of people, when they're hiring a contractor, they don't do that every day. And so whatever contract they might see might be the first one they've seen. And if they got a good feeling, then they're like, I, should I accept this or should I push back on something? I don't know. Is this normal? You know, it's not, it's, it's kind of new for the homeowners to engage in this. And so, and if they have a good feeling with, and the guy's got a good reputation, you kind of have to like take their word for it, sort of, right? So sort of. Because what's, how's it done? Th- there probably isn't anything else in, in a homeowner's life that has this kind of an arc to it. Uh, you, don't, you don't go to an automobile dealership and say, hey, listen, um, I want to buy one of next year's cars. And they said, okay, well, listen, why don't you put down about $10,000 and we're going to put it in a pool, send it to Ford, <laughs> and they're going to be designing the pickup trucks. And you'll yeah. when the new trucks come out, you've got your place in line and this will be a part Nothing else works that way. You you write a check or put it on your credit card and um, and you take right. it home. Um, I, the, people hate this answer, but if you're concerned about it, talk to a lawyer. Um, yeah. Or talk to the contractor. Just say, look, yeah. this this makes me uncomfortable. How do I know that yeah. you're going to take this eight thousand dollars and go buy materials as opposed to um, ask for the contractor's references? Check and yeah. see. Um, check with a Better Business Bureau. Find out if um, if this contractor is habitually in trouble. Um, if this yeah. contractor has a great reputation, yeah, you can look on the on the online. You can look at Yelp. You can look at so many sources, um, yeah. and it takes some effort, but it's probably yeah. worth doing. Rather than if you're a homeowner taking the risk, because that's a lot of money to find out. Yeah, there's no there's no lumber bought or no. Yeah. No appliances bought. I've been thinking we're, my wife and I are building a house right now. And so I'm really thinking about all these questions a lot because we're, we have a general contractor and he is sending his subs over to do work. I don't really know any of these guys, but I've really enjoyed watching them work and just seeing, you know, it's such a fun, it's just different. The subcontractors don't work for me. And they know that, like, I'll go over to the job and kind of do like, they don't care about me at all. And they don't work for me. They kind of, it's just a kind of a different thing. Anyways, I was just thinking about how many, um, like signs and and clues exist about contractors that are unspoken, like their truck and their clothes and the way they, all of these things. And man, a guy, you could write a book about it. Like what a contractor's truck and appearance says about the, the, the business on both ends. Sometimes you'll see like at the lumber yard, a, a truck and trailer that's, 
brand new and jacked up 10 feet in the air and logoed out to the moon and so flashy. And to me, I look at that and I'm like, that is a real, that is a red flag. That is a red flag to me. Sure, sure. (laughs) And also like on the other end, a truck that's like got all the wheels like wobbling and falling off. That's also, so there's, there's not, not necessarily the right truck or the right clothes to wear, but it's like, you kind of know it when you see it, a person who's not messing around who's kind of, and whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the first draw will tell you a lot of things. Um, if the contractor sends you an email that said, I need to draw uh, 8,000 bucks. Can I pick up the check this afternoon? That's a red flag. If the contractor yeah. said, I'm going to be submitting a draw on Tuesday of next week, it'll be about this amount. They submit it in, in writing and it's detailed. Um, and the, They've got, especially if they've got receipts attached that shows they've spent the money, um, then you learn about the contractor's ability and desire to document the job correctly. So you've got confidence that you're getting what you pay for. Um, And that um, the guy that built the house I'm sitting in uh, built the first house I ever built in the 1980s. Um, And I remember my father said of him, He's the kind of guy you'd shoot craps with over the phone. Um, <laughs> which I, I always say, yeah, because we were we were sheathing that house before we put stucco on it, and th- there was a hundred sheets of plywood. Uh, we sheathed it in plywood, and the next draw I got had a credit for a sheet of plywood that oh. he had taken off the job to use in a remodel. Uh, it was a couple of blocks away. It was quicker for his carpenter wow. to run over and pick up a sheet off our job. And there's a credit for whatever a sheet of plywood cost. And, um, wow. and I just remember having this warm and fuzzy feeling that has never left about my work with this guy. So, yeah. And from uh, then on you, you were, you just relaxed completely. Yes. Like this is, this person is, uh, I don't have to, I don't have to stress about this anymore. Which, um, Nate, this is, Um, this is something that works from both sides of the equation, both owner um, and contractor. And that is the quality of the relationship you have with your customer or your contractor. Um, Mm -hmm. If people are formal and standoffish and confrontational, you don't have much of a chance when stress arises in a job and it will. Construction is stressful. I think we all know that. Um, Mm -hmm. things don't always go the way they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you've got, if if you can cultivate a good working relationship with your general contractor, or if you're a general with your subs, with the owner, you've got an opportunity to cut off trouble before, before it grows. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's, there's nothing like a phone call, um, that says, I said I'd be there at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to make it. Um, and it's not, well, I stayed up a little late last night or I took another job, but, but uh, making good on your communications and then showing up. Um, mm-hmm. if, if there's a mistake, fixing it before it gets to be a big, you can head off so much trouble, not all of it, not the sneaky part of it, but uh, you yeah. can head off a lot of trouble just by the quality of your of your communication and the quality of your relationships that you, that you build on a construction site. Um, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I have enjoyed building a couple of houses, getting to know people who love to do good work 
and then showing appreciation for the work they do, taking taking my role in that, letting them know that I appreciate that they show up um, and that they don't they don't dog it on the job, that they put their effort into it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, when you have let's say mediation clients who are contractors, yes, and we at the start of the conversation you described how sometimes these lawsuits or this, this litigation or these conflicts are like weather and maybe even more like a flood where it's inevitable at some point, yes. if you're yes. outside long enough, sure, it is inevitable. you're going to get, you're yeah. going to get soaked no matter how good you are. But um, among those clients you've had who are contractors who, you know, are just, these are good, honest people doing it right. And they just had whatever bad luck. What are, what are some of like the top three takeaways? Like, Maybe it's getting everything in writing, but what kind of reoccurring things would would you love to just drill into those contractors' heads to keep them out of that oh, chair? If you had to really simplify it to okay. just a handful of things, um, understanding contract documents, understanding the the, the undertaking. Uh, you'll hear a contractor say. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I bid this and now the general wants me to pay for that. This is like the angle stops on the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, understandable mistake. You, you, you can see it coming. There's no, there's no moral failing there. It's just that um, there was an unexpected financial risk embedded in the document. And that is understanding the risk you're taking. That's, that's one of them. So read the contract read, and understand read the it. Contract. You... Yeah, read okay. the contract. Um, a, a lot of people get caught up in this business of the distribution of risk. People saying, that's your fault because I did, you know, the delay is caused by you, not by me, so forth. Uh-huh. Um, paying attention to documenting your work as you go along. Um, uh-huh. Understanding... That's that's a big one. Probably the biggest one is understanding that sometimes the flood is going to carry your pickup away too. And yeah. you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just that you got caught in this flood with everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. And that is not a moral failing on your part. That is a risk of being in the construction business. And when somebody got disappointed somewhere else in this process and you got swept along with it. Um, mm-hmm. um, don't beat yourself up and don't get mad at the system. Mm-hmm. Hard not to get mad at the system. Um, but you know, bad things happen to good people and there's a lot of risk in this, um, in this business. And yeah, don't get talked into doing something that, you knew at the moment you shouldn't do. Uh, we've all done it and we will all continue to do it. But um, um, the the general says, hey, listen, um, I don't know. I, nothing comes, comes to mind right now. I'd love to have a, a great example, but um, just go ahead and do this and we'll sort it out later. You got, right. boy, it's just so hard to sort it out later. Yeah. 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 yeah it's like telling the, telling the, water heater installer. Hey, install the, the gas furnace while you're at it. I know you got the same tools and you can figure it out. Will you just put that in for me? I'll tell you what, just, (laughs) just put a Y in there. 
I'm, yeah. I'm going to put a furnace over there and so forth. And this is a, a yeah, don't worry. Uh, yeah. I know how to make that connection. Well, yeah, yeah you ought to worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You talked into doing something you know in your heart of hearts you shouldn't do. And you did it because somebody who seemed nice asked you to do it or somebody yeah. who had leverage against you told you to do it. Um, right. And you knuckle under. It just, those things will turn around and bite you, you know? Yeah. Um, this the contractor we have working on in the job is so. I'm so happy that we, we have him. I feel just so lucky, and for several reasons. And I'll probably make some videos at some point describing it because I think he's just really doing a great job at all the things you're talking about. But one of the things that I really noticed right off the bat is that he's building this house that is. It's just right down the middle of what he built. This is his comfort zone is building this exact thing. And I was thinking like, you know, I probably, he probably could build a car wash or, right. um, I don't know, a Jiffy Lube or something like that. I mean, undoubtedly he could, but that would be a little bit like what you said, like asking, putting somebody outside of their comfort zone a little bit. And I just, that feeling of having the right person doing the thing that they are the most proficient at is, that's really great when you get when you have a contractor like that. They're there doing the thing that they know how to do better than anybody else, and you're not twisting their arm into doing something that they never wanted to do in the first place. Absolutely. They're just kind of out of their, and out that's of their the, lane. That's that again is another source of risk. Um, somebody asking you to do something that is not in your wheelhouse, um, mm -hmm. and you think, oh, "I think I know how to do that." I think I know how to do that. That's sort of a, yeah, you better know how to do it. Uh, yeah. Or, or you better hire somebody who does know how to do it um, and partner with somebody if it's not in your, in, in your wheelhouse. You, you take risk if you, um, if you step outside your comfort zone, unless mm -hmm. you price it and learn how to do it, um, mm -hmm. which is, that's a different kind of construction. The, the, the real tricky, uh, quirky yeah. stuff. Um, um, maybe one of my last questions here, how does mediation actually work? Who, who pays for it? Do they, 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 both parties agree to hire you, for example, but how, how does that work that people bring their cases to you versus other options? And I'm thinking about someone right now who is involved with something who's like, oh, I'd maybe mediation would be a conflict resolution tool. So how do you go about like getting, you know, help in this way? Well, it, it, it may operate differently in different parts of the country. In Texas, um, it operates very much as an adjunct, uh, sort of a sidecar to the, um, to the litigation business. Um, almost every case, well more than 99% of the cases I have, um, are, are fully lawyered up. Parties are represented. They're typically in litigation. Sometimes litigation hadn't started, but they're getting ready to. And the lawyers look at one another and say, shall we take a rip at getting this thing resolved? And the lawyers then engage me. And then they'll split a fee and we'll set a date and they'll send me information on the case. And I'll invite people either virtually, do it on, on Zoom, or, or in a conference room setting, invite the parties and their lawyers. And we'll spend a full day talking through the project and the, um, and the risks and the litigation risks and their, their different expectations and wants 
out of the lawsuit and see if we can hammer together um, a, a settlement that um, that works for all the parties. So does it does it do you work like a judge? Are you making decisions that both parties kind of agree to, or well, are you only like facilitating and oh, being only the middleman, facilitating and asking snarky questions? Um, people, <laughs> okay. people will tell me um, lawyers will overpredict in in favor of their clients. Happens every time. So yeah. we'll stomp a mud hole through you. No, no, you won't. This is a, and then we'll get into private caucuses where the other side, and they'll tell me how they're going to clobber the other side. And my job is to listen, understand it, be able to deliver that message to the other room, but also scrub a little of the shine off your message. Ask questions about whether or not you had thought of this, thought of that. Bring back the counter message and deliver Uh it in a way that it's maybe a little more digestible. And people Uh can start to wonder, oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose that could happen. I mean, because huh. trials are crazy things. They're uh-huh. they're unpredictable. You know, wow. jurors are largely people who are not smart enough to get out of jury service, um, <laughs> um, or people who really want to be on a jury, which is even scary. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I I do not understand that, but right. I'm sure you're right. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, it's it's a matter of of helping people appreciate exactly what we've talked about for the last hour, and that is risk. What can happen to me in the courtroom? And that is highly unpredictable. So are you, I'm just visualizing if you were my mediator, are you speaking kind of only through the lawyers or do you are you able to communicate to their clients directly? Because I kind of feel like you'd be so good at that. Absolutely. We sit in a room, lawyer, clients, typically we'll have a, a brief session where everybody's together. Sometimes uh-huh. there's some some banter back and forth among the lawyers about, who's got the best of it, but then we'll break Uh up, go to separate conference rooms, and I get a chance to talk directly with the clients, hear their story, Uh which is an important thing. The client gets to unburden themselves um, Uh outside the courtroom. This is what really happened to me, not lawyer questioning, and then tell the jury what happened, you know, not that sort of managed production, but they get to talk to me, and I get to nod and smile and understand and develop a little rapport with them. The lawyer then says, and here's how we're going to take that story, and we're going to cut and edit it, and this is the movie we're going to show the jury, and we're going to win the Academy Award, and they're going to give us a bunch of money. And then you go to the other room, and they go, nah, it's just not like that at all. And um, I listen. And then I get to be the the person that moves those different narratives back and forth and let people hear the counter narrative um, Uh and begin to wonder, question, sometimes doubt whether they can pull off the stunning courtroom victory that they're hoping for. uh, Got it. So they they don't necessarily come to mediation feeling like I'm going to walk out of this room with a solution. They kind of might think of it like this is a stop along the road. If it works, great, but we're going to court and blah, blah, blah. And you're you're kind of looking to see if there's a way to off-ramp everybody beforehand. But they might think they're going to trial 100% even when they're and, talking to you. And often one side will think that and the other side is saying, get me out of here. I've right. had enough fun. I want out. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let me off the ride. <laughs> right, 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 right. How, how, how many, can you even like give us a number? What percentage of mediation cases that hit your, you know, your conference room, like are resolved no. or do, do half of them get resolved no, or do no, 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 less than like, that? Or what's it like? More like, 70 to 80%. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, that is cool. It's a good process, but there are two components. I, th- I think I do a good job, but when people appreciate the risk that they take when they go into a courtroom, uh-huh. the best appreciation of it is to avoid it. Um, yeah. And most people don't want to have any part of it. Uh, a commercial owner who's built hundreds of projects and they're in litigation all the time, they may it may not bother them. They may be the one that says, this is a stop along the way. We'll get a better settlement on the eve of trial. But most people really do not like this process at all, yeah. the litigation process. And I'm if, if one or two or three of your academy members or people that watch your channel can avoid getting into litigation as a result of conversations like this, then I think we have spent uh-huh. a good evening. Yeah. I, I automatically think about conflicts like that I could potentially be in, which are, you know, small residential type, you know, but the commercial world is really a different animal it's, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Do, do everything we talked about, it just kind of applies like 10 X with commercial, like take that many more pictures yeah. or, or do you really need to, have a different mindset if you're a contractor working, you know, on, on a commercial uh, Both, job. both. Um, because commercial jobs are driven by much more um, uh, detailed contracts. You're building a hotel. Um, the, the, the drawings, the architectural drawings, there may be, you know, 200 sheets of architectural drawings. There may be a hundred sheets of, of, of engineering drawings. The spec book is, is, is this thick. There's a hierarchy over what controls. If there's a conflict between the, the spec book and the architectural drawings, then the contract will tell you which of those is the higher ranking document. So understanding um, the, it's mostly the, the, the AIA, the American Institute of Architects contract forms, which are mm-hmm. hideously complicated. Um, <laughs> the, there's just a lot more contract complexity in big jobs, a lot more time stress in big jobs. If a house uh-huh. is going to take a year to build and it takes 14 months, eh, usually people get over it. If a hotel yeah. is going to take 24 months and it takes 36 months, somebody's going to be making a claim for 12 months worth of that hotel's operations. Um, it. And it can get into big dollars in a hurry. So time and delay. and uh, Yeah. Um, and it's probably much less forgiving because you, there's way too many people and it's too corporate to have like a, you know, forgive somebody, oh, this and that, their kid was sick or something. It's somebody's going to get smashed. Somebody's going to get smashed, right. And yeah, and, and then you you wind in the involvement of the um, of the design team, the architects and the, um, and, and the engineers and their role in this. And something yeah. we haven't talked about at all. Who takes the risk that the design itself is a problem. And that's, that's right. a very complicated legal question. Depends upon jurisdiction and, and lots of other things. But what if the architect yeah. drew something that won't stand up or won't yep. keep the rain out? Um, the owner doesn't yep. care. The owner's going to look at the contractor and say, make my house dry. Yeah. And everybody followed the plans and right. it's kind of like, well, the plans are wrong. And then, but yeah. then the engineer's like, 
Well, the city approved them. They thought it would work. Absolutely, absolutely. But the city's like, Can't the city's like, right. not our problem. Not <laughs> our problem. And wow. And the architect has a, uh, or the engineer has a limitation of liability embedded in their in their contract. Uh, oh. Liability is limited to the to the fee I charged. Go get it from somebody else. And then the yeah. owner is in that circumstance incented to find fault with the contractors. And that is after the owner has gone through the so-called value engineering process. Uh, this project was going to cost eight million bucks. We thought the bids came in and it's ten million. How can we get it back to eight million? Well, you take all the safety margins out. You take all right. of the things that make it a really good building and turn it into a marginal building, and then there's no room for error anymore. And right. people wonder why it leaks. Um, yep. Quite a process. There's. Man, it, it really makes me appreciate construction more because when the, the really great structures get erected and come into existence, and I can't help but think about like the the most famous of like the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, yeah. which yeah. when I think about engineering and risk and somebody like, you know, working out calculations and being like, yep, it'll work, man. But there's a million of the examples like that, even in, you know, small towns where people will be building an interesting house on an interesting site and some engineer somewhere says, this is what we're doing. And they say, and everybody says, okay, that okay. is just, it's just a beautiful thing, you know, that, that, um, it, it is. that things get built at all. It is a beautiful thing, except when it isn't, except, yeah, except when the when engineer it said it'll work. And there's yeah. an uh-oh in the, um, um, Somebody, somebody thought that it was okay to use a soil boring a hundred yards over there and not right here and discovered that there's a change in the, in the geotechnical aspects of the soil and a foundation that oh. works a hundred yards over there doesn't work here because the soil characteristics are different. And a house is built and then it starts to heave and crack and the search for the guilty begins. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking out loud here, but when, when, when men are young and maybe starting in the trades and in general, you take a lot more risks in yes. every aspect of life because you can, there's less to lose. You can bounce back. You're younger and stronger, a million reasons, but it is important that as contractors get deeper in their career, that they recalibrate and maybe, just because they didn't take some of these things super serious five years ago, that doesn't mean like, well, that's the way I do it. It, it, it may be time to recalibrate and get yourself, your ev the evolution of your business in, in every aspect should develop, including right. your, your, your risk, uh, I don't know, controls or right, right. measures. And, it, and, yeah. and always... A you, you hope that as people grow in the trades, their judgment grows with them. Um, yeah. And that's a, it's, it's hard to develop a good judgment module if you don't already have one between your ears. But um, <laughs> I'd say work on it, pay attention to it. But yeah. as your business grows, you add crews, uh, you, you got more equipment, you're getting bigger jobs, go back and revisit with lawyers and insurance people your overall level of protection. Get mm -hmm. good advice about what you're doing to protect yourself from legal risk because one bad job can wipe you out. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, here's what I want to do, um, Dean. I have a feeling 
we will do this again. And I'd like the audience, the listeners, if you have specific questions, put them in the comments. Dean has really offered, and he he's part of our Essential Craftsman Academy. He's contributing there. And um, at least as what you told me a few months ago, you're really, well, obviously you're going out of your way to educate and keep people from having to hire you. You're shooting yourself in the foot business-wise. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> plenty of work. Here's what I would like to say. Uh, general questions, I'm happy to answer. Uh, not yes. to be um, confused with giving legal advice on specific instances of um, of contracting issues. Um, yes. Because I can't. I'm not, I'm, I won't know, uh, except in a general way, how to respond to a question. So yeah. here's the lawyer in me controlling risk. <laughs> for, uh, yeah. Well, I'll filter, I will filter them out. But I have a feeling, even like the, the thing you said earlier, you know, Text and a cell phone picture, does that count for documenting the work? Yes, it does, based Absolutely. on what you Absolutely. said earlier. And that is good. Um, that's very doable um, you know, practice that someone can add to their routine that could potentially save them. Or documenting a phone call. Uh, and actually, my contractor and I did this. And again, he's great. But we had a call, and he said, he, he put it on me because he's a busy guy. He said, when you hang up, will you text me those bullet points we just talked about? And I was like, Yes, sir. I will. And I did. And now it's done. It was so smart of him just to kind of like, just pin it on me. I did it. And it was just, so that's another uh, little tip for both sides to do things like that. Sure. And I'm, I don't know why, except that it is not a matter of habit that people don't at the end of a day, take their phone and go click, click, click. Here's what I did today. Yeah. It's, you, you don't have to remember that. You actually have a photographic record of the work you accomplished in a day. So if there's a six months down the road, somebody said, well, I couldn't get the, um, the roofer in because um, you weren't finished with this. Yes, I was. A couple of photographs at the end of every day fix a lot of problems like that. So, yeah. 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 Um, okay. My last question, and then I'll let you go. How long you're, you're, Getting from what I've seen, the stuff you've shared, you are beyond beginner in your blacksmithing journey. I'm wondering how long you've been going at it, what got you interested in it, and what you're, where you feel you're at in your progression. Because the okay. things you've shared are really impressive as someone who's who knows how hard it is. <laughs> Nate, um, I bought a house hmm, 20 years ago from a guy who was kind of an odd duck. Um, and he took me into his garage and said, I have two anvils. You need to buy one from me. And I thought, <laughs> really? And he said, he said, I was going to learn blacksmithing, but I don't want to move these anvils. Which one do you want? And I said, which one should I have? And he said, this one has better rebound. It was a, um, um, it's a turn of the last century, 147 pound hay button uh, anvil in great shape. And I made myself a promise. I'm going to learn to use that someday. Then wow. about three or four years ago, I was prowling around on the internet and Scott pops up one day and said, we got this cool new thing we're going to do. Um, we're going to teach blacksmithing on YouTube and you're going to be a part of it. And I said, hell yes. I wow. never swung a hammer before. And I signed up for course one and was captivated from the from the first day, so this is this wow. this journey is only three or four, three or four years old. I'm just having the time of my life. 
Bang I did not realize that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I did not. I, I assumed you'd been at it because you, if I remember correctly, you're like working on tomahawks now and oh, punching big. Absolutely. Eyes. It's just, wow. it's too much fun. Pam tells me if, if I'm pacing around the house, she just says, go, go bang on something hot, you know, <laughs> get out of here. Wow. That is so cool. Well, I'm, I'm so glad I asked that. And, um, God, I, you love to hear it. Well, um, next time we do this, maybe I'll lay up some pictures of some of the stuff you've been putting on there because it is not easy blacksmithing. I've, I, I've only kind of barely gotten my hands on it. And it's definitely one of those things that looks a lot easier yeah. than it actually yeah. is. And yet you don't have to be good to have a good time and to really kind of be enjoying it. You can make simple and basic things and get probably the same amount of satisfaction out of, you know, masterworks, at least. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I very much appreciate the introduction and the the skillful introduction to the craft. Um, and it comes <laughs> well, it comes from you and your dad. That's the yeah. well. Yeah, my dad's a teacher. He's a he's a he's a true just teacher at heart. And so it's great that he's able to teach to a little bigger audience in our small town uh, where we're at here. And really, it's kind of what you're doing with your expertise here with all this legal training. Um, so valuable for the right person at the right time in their life. I, I mean, I not, so. virtually like almost priceless, I'm sure, for the people who avoid conflicts that could be career ending. So thank you so much for taking the time. We did this later than normal. And I know it's even later where you're at. Um, and I, I would love to do this in a few months and I'll kind of ca gather some of the questions. So if you're listening to this audience um, and you have specifics, here's your chance. He, uh, Dean is one of us. Uh, except he's a mediator, extraordinaire, <laughs> legal genius. So um, let's let's get a nice a collection of questions from y'all. And um, Dean, thank you again. We will link to your website. You have a website for your you know I don't business. Um, we can share. I, oh, I, wow. Well, I actually do. It's a but it's not a. Um, I mean, I'm. It's a two pager. It's got a picture okay. of me and a telephone number and an email address. Um, my business comes from lawyers around here. Yeah, I don't. Fair enough. I, I don't need the advertising right now. But thank All you. All right, fair enough. I have a good well, evening, Nate. All right. Well, have a great night. Thanks again, and we will do it again soon. Sounds good.